0: Good to see you all. Get in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you are turning there, I don't know if you knew or not, but Courtney and I have a little announcement we need to make. And it's going to be in the form of this hat. <laughs> Super excited. Uh, I will not be wearing this hat, uh, I might wear it ironically a few times, but uh, Courtney's older sister sent this in the mail, and I didn't know what else to do with it, and so uh, I thought I would do the big reveal. So July 29th, a girl is being added to our family, we are super excited, Duke and Jack are fired up to have a little sister, and um, yeah, we're just excited, so thanks for uh, humoring me in that, that was good. Has nothing to do with Hebrews 10, Um, but we're, uh, you know, and if my daughter listens to this podcast one day, I'm sorry whatever your name's gonna be. Okay, Hebrews 10. Let's go ahead and turn there, guys. We've got 13 chapters in Hebrews, and so we're getting toward the end here. Um, this is continuing over and over again, these themes that we're seeing, trying to show us that in the Old Covenant gives us the shape and the beauty of the gospel. And so if you're a title person, this is a not my best work, but the title is, perfected for all time for those who draw near. I know that's a mouthful, so sorry about that. Perfected for all time for those who draw near. And as I just mentioned, there's another passage in Hebrews that lets the shadows and types and pictures of the Old Testament fuel our awe of Jesus Christ, his gospel, his living, his dying, his rising again to secure the salvation of all people who would come to him by faith and repentance. And so, You need reminded of this again that the gospel is good news. There's no other news worthy of being preached. We must understand and love and cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of the ways that scripture gives us the angles of it. And I love this is what Hebrews continues to help us see. It holds up the gospel of the diamond, the diamond of the gospel, to let us see a new glimmer, a new way that we can see it in its fullness that we see in the word. And so one of the things that we see in Hebrews 10 that you're going to see tonight is that a Hebrews 10-shaped gospel is the reality of being perfected, that is, being made whole for all time, a permanent, consistent, ever-glorious perfection for those who draw near to God. That's what we're looking at. We're going to get to that. We could be the type of people who believe that deeply, and it changes the way that we worship in the way that we live. And so we all need this. If you're a non-Christian in this room, you need to listen, but you're seeking for those things in all the wrong places. The Bible makes it clear that in your sin, you can't seek God, but we still long for these things that only God provides. And it's easy for all of us to be tricked into seeking this wholeness or this permanent, consistent glory to be made much of, to be known in all of the wrong places. Places And so if you're non-Christian tonight, you can hear this word by faith, and you really can seek God. You can. Christians, you need this too. The enemy of your soul, along with your flesh and the world, are working tirelessly for you to forget gospel truths and live as if they aren't true. Not just internally. We all know this, how easy it is for us to let our souls get jacked up by believing lies about God, about how he cares about us, about ourselves, but also externally when our love for God doesn't overflow into a life of sacrificial love for our neighbors, not only in serving them but in proclaiming the gospel. And so the Bible makes it clear. We don't live as we ought because we forget what we know. And so we come back to the word again. We believe again. We rally around the gospel again. So before we go into Hebrews 10, I want to show you the last two verses of Hebrews 9, where we ended our time last week. Up on the screen here, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Realities to set the stage for tonight. Listen to me. You will die. You're going to die one day. not saying this to be masochistic or to be dark, but this is a good thing to consider. If it's true and it's a reality, we need to live as if it's true. There will be a time when you stop living. Our spirituality, um, in its realest sense, is not just some fluffy, sentimental high-five for your soul. The Christian faith deals with the hard realities of life. In this case, it's the fact that all of us are going to die one day. Look at the text. It's appointed for man. so That means mankind there, okay? It's not just the dudes that are going to die. And after that comes judgment. Reality, you have to think about. You are going to die, and after you die, you will be judged. Have you considered this? The truth of who you are, who we are, fully and finally exposed before a holy God. We're going to stand before the God that made us one day. And the question that matters, what ultimately determines our eternal life, is what did we do with Jesus? Fact of the matter is, you are either in Adam, our first father, and condemned, or you are in Christ and saved. Our faith following Christ is radically inclusively exclusive, it is anyone can come by faith, but it's only through Christ that we get to God by faith and repentance. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I think it's easy sometimes when we hear second coming or his second appearing to let, um, if you grew up in church, maybe in Appalachia, Bible Belt, sometimes the end time stuff, you're thinking like, end times charts or like uh, people trying to guess, you know, what is the uh, mark of the beast or that kind of thing. And I think it's easy when we see these second coming references to let our minds go there. Like, oh great, this guy's going to tell me that Google is the Antichrist or something. Um, I'm not saying that, just an example. But it's easy to let our kind of view, our shape our longing for the second coming of Christ to get hijacked by these things. But the Bible lets the, the reality of Jesus' second coming shape the way we live now. And so when we talk about Jesus returning, it means the judgment of all things. But it means for those of us who have been saved, we are eagerly waiting and longing for him to return because he's dealt with our sin already and he's returning to rescue us finally. So that's what chapter 10 is going to try to point us to all over again. So let's look um, at the first four verses of Hebrews 10 together. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins." But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right, phrase by phrase, let's make sure we understand this. So that idea there of law, where it says, for since the law, law here is being defined as the priesthood, the commandments, the sacrifices, etc. So the law, meaning, um, in, the, in the New Testament, when the law is referenced, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean specifically the Old Testament, it could mean even more specifically, the Ten Commandments. But in context here in Hebrews, what it's obviously showing us are these Old Covenant realities that we've been examining all throughout this book. So for our learning context, when he's saying for since the law, this would include the shadow realities that we've been learning about in the tabernacle and the priesthood. Do you remember these from chapter 9? The lampstand, that God is the light for sinners and it shows them the way in the darkness that he is the bread of presence, that he fellowships with and satisfies sinners, the curtain in the tabernacle, that God is separate from sinners in his holiness, the ark of the covenant, that God reigns over sinners, the tabernacle itself, that God dwells with sinners, and the priesthood, God makes a way to be with sinners. We considered how all of this is fulfilled in Christ. Let me get a drink. Hold on. almost put my hand that way and that would have put the cough right in the mic so you're welcome (laughs) okay so for since the law look at the next part look at your look at the bible has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities so all of these things that we've been learning about from the old covenant were shadows of the good things coming in christ and his kingdom and the gospel now it's important I'm always going to remind you of this as we're going through Hebrews, to not get caught up in thinking that the old covenant was bad and the new covenant is good. They are both good. The Lord decided to let the people of God in the old covenant into the heavenly realities as they awaited the coming of their Messiah. So these things weren't bad. They were preparatory in making them long for what God would do in Christ, namely his death and resurrection. So the old covenant was good, and Hebrews shows us that the new covenant relationship through Christ is better. <clears throat> Man, good grief. Hang on. <coughs> okay, good. It's gonna be really awkward on the live stream and the podcast, so sorry about that. Okay, now <clears throat> on the other side of what Christ has done, meaning he has already come, he's already lived, he's already died, he's already rose again, we get now, those of us in Christ, The heavenly realities, the implications of the gospel, joy, peace, freedom from guilt and shame, etc. But even we still await the final consummation of these things when Jesus comes back to save those of us who are eagerly awaiting him. Remember, I told you this, we are already but not yet in the kingdom. The age to come of the new covenant has come in Jesus' death and resurrection, but we still await its final consummation. And so this is the point. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, by its nature, was meant to be temporary and prepare the world for Jesus Christ, shaping the gospel for us and showing mankind that God was holy and we had to come to him on his terms. So let's keep, keep reading with me. <clears throat> It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So notice once again, it's by design. The old covenant sacrifices were offered year after year after year, but it can never make anyone perfect. It couldn't make anyone whole, complete. It was an intentionally inadequate system That could ritually bring people into God's presence, but it could never fully forgive or set free or remove guilt. That only comes from God Himself and the work He does. It was teaching the people that God is holy and they need help if they want to get to Him. If they wanted true life, completeness, wholeness, what we're all longing for, it would have to be God that would work. And so we need to understand this too. Even though we are on this side of the cross, meaning Jesus has already died and rose again, ending the old covenant, these truths still remain. Without God's work in your life, you remain separated from him in your sin. But Ecclesiastes chapter three would tell us that eternity is written on your heart. So even though we don't seek God in our sin, we have eternity in our heart, which means we're longing for something that we can't seek. But it's that angst, that Longing for wholeness, that is what shows us that we're made for something more. So, the old covenant story, even now, is showing us what is true of us. The old covenant system, this would make them long for Christ. And this passage continues to use that logic to make this point. I'm losing my voice again. Give me one second. Y'all talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to cough really hard. Okay. We've never done that in six years of Campus Collective, but that was going to get really frustrating for you and worse for me. So, okay, back to the text. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Man, it literally feels like I have like a WD-40 in my throat now. Like I'm like, is that, Nate, is that what you use for like smoothing things out? WD 40, okay. Thank you. Look at the logic. Otherwise, this is huge. See it? Meaning, if they could have made the worshipers perfect, they wouldn't have had to keep doing this. They wouldn't have needed to keep making more and more sacrifices. But this was part of the system that God ordained. One of the points, please understand this, one of the points of the Old Covenant system was to constantly remind people of their sins. And that was mercy for them. It's a merciful thing that God would allow people to know their sin. This goes against our cultural air today. We deal with the problem of sin that we won't even admit is a problem by forgetting about it or excusing it, not remembering it in order to see it as something that needs fixed. It is good for God to show us how sinful we are because it's true. He's not being mean it's not a mean thing to be told that you are evil in your heart. The moral law, God's character as evidenced by his commands, I've used this, this illustration that I've heard before, but it, I love the comparison to an x-ray. Um, it, doesn't, it can't fix anything, but it shows you that it's broken. And, and to carry this out, listen, if you go to um, the x-ray room and you put your broken arm up there, The x-ray tech is not being mean by telling you that your arm is broken. It would be cruel for the x-ray tech to see your broken arm and tell you that you're fine. That's what is truly evil. What matters is what is true. And if it's true that we're evil, that we're sinners, and we need rescued, then it's a good thing for God to reveal that to us in his law. And so God did this for the old covenant people. Notice the realities. Instead of being cleansed and having no consciousness of sins, they were reminded of sins. They needed reminded that sin was still an issue in their hearts, not just immoral actions. It is evil hearts loving self over God. Man, it's so easy to boil our morality down to how well we manage our lowercase sins, right? We don't do this and we do this and we don't do this and we do this. When the Bible definitely has categories for that, but what is really at stake is that we have hearts that cherish self over God. Capital S sin. In our sin, we are against God and his perfection. So, and then he concludes this section with For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Once again, only God can take away sins. These sacrifices were symbolizing the payment for sin. They were a shadow, a gruesome, disturbing shadow of the reality of sin and what must be done as a consequence of it. And so the overwhelming work of the Old Covenant would be to remind loudly, boldly, in a bloody, messy way, that God is holy and you aren't worthy of him because of your sin, but he will make a way to get you and can make you worthy because he loves you. That's amazing. It's the best way to see humans. I love the Christian faith and how it gives us a way to view people. It fully affirms the absolute beauty of the creation of man and woman, full of dignity and worth and value. But the Christian faith also affirms the reality of our rebellion and our resolve to live apart from God. It's both. We're made in the image of God, but that image has been broken. We have rebelled against him. And this is where we all are before Christ, either before he actually came bodily in the case of the old covenant people of God or in the case of us now if you aren't a Christian. We can desperately try to be good enough for God. We can use our religion, serving and going to church, going to campus ministry, to cover up the bad in our lives and promote the good. But every single time we attempt to do this, if you're honest with yourself, it is just a reminder to us That something isn't right and that we need God. Have you been there? You think, I manage my morality enough, then I'll be okay with God. When in reality, all that does is remind you that something's wrong. Because we can't out-moral our way to God. Our hearts are sinful. Why do we feel that we have to keep it up on our own in order to stay good? We think, I'm just going to get back into it, or I'm just going to make these new commitments, or I'm going to finally start doing better. But if that's the way you think that you're getting to perfection in God, completeness, wholeness, then all you leave with is a constant reminder that you're not good enough. But even followers of Christ can go here too. Any of you who love Jesus, exhausted from trying to keep your own salvation by Thinking the right gospel thoughts or praying the right things or nailing the right disciplines or living up to whatever version of Christian you look up to the most. It can get exhausting, can't it? You're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm never, like God will not accept me until I A, B, C, D, whatever it is. Any of you tired of basing your entire acceptance before God on your works and your ability to not do one particular sin? This happens a lot too. We base our entire relationship with Jesus around how well we manage one sin. We naturally want to work for acceptance from God and nothing can do that. Not even the blood of goats and bulls and definitely not the blood, sweat and tears of your personal willpower and your personal salvation project. All of our desperate attempts to get right with God, all it's gonna do is remind us that we can't be right with God on our own. We always fail in obedience We think we're saved by faith, but then trick ourselves into thinking that we keep ourselves in the faith by our works. But the gospel speaks a better word. Let's see how this passage continues to show us the beauty of Christ. Look at verse five. What is God gonna do about this? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Man, I love this. So consequently, the start of this sentence shows that the previous verse is important for context. So because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, consequently, Christ came into the world. That's what we're trying to get at here. This is the way that God intended for them to anticipate the true sacrifice for sin that was coming in Christ. God in his infinite wisdom decided the best way to set up the world for his decisive work against sin would be this way. And so our fight right now, even as we look at these things all over again, is to not let these repetitive, culturally distant things in Hebrews stay in our heads as fun Old Testament theology, but that it would sink deep in us and make us cherish The gospel. So look, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, so at some point during the first stages of Jesus entering our world to save us, he said these things. And what follows is a quote from Psalm 40. So what this already in our Bible reading shows us that whenever we read the Psalms, we should be reading them historically in their context, but also typologically asking what is it showing us about Jesus in their context and how they point to Christ. Look at this psalm sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, look at this, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus understood that God the Father did not ultimately want sacrifices and offerings. Jesus understood that God wanted him to be that sacrifice, literally his body, Jesus understood there was no pleasure taken in those burnt offerings or sin offerings because they were meant to point to him, not become a man-made religion. And Jesus, clearly, was willing to take on this mission, literally because it was the will of God. Now, if you're a careful reader, you should notice, maybe you already flipped over to Psalm 40 to kind of see it in its context, you'll notice that that phrase, but a body you have prepared for me, was not in Psalm 40, probably not in your translation, So let's read it um, in the ESV in Psalm 40 verse 6 and show you what's going on there. So it says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So the author of Hebrews, when quoting Psalm 40, used the phrase, quote, but a body you have prepared for me. Instead of the phrase from Psalm 40, you have given me an open ear. Now, the author of Hebrews was quoting from something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when you research this on the scholars, um, of Hebrew scholars, what they'll say is that the text of Psalm 40 says, ears you have dug for me. And so the point is this. and that's it's kind of a weird phrase. We don't really use that phrase now, obviously. But the point is that the people in that time would have understood the Hebrew metaphor here. The point is that you use your ears... To hear and obey God's will. And so God dug Jesus' ears, or created him a body. The Son of God was not created, but at some point he did get a human body. And so in that body he does the will of his Father. Now I know that's kind of um, kind of weird and deep, maybe, but it's it's pretty simple. It's saying in Psalm 40, this guy is quoting this, saying, It's not, it's not these things you've delighted, but you've given me an open ear. And they would have heard that and understood that it meant, but you've dug me an ear, meaning you made me an ear so that I would hear your will and that I would obey, showing us that what God wants from us is not our ritualistic sacrifices, but what he wants is a heart of obedience. And Jesus was willing to come do the Father's will because he loved the Father and he loved us. Look at verse 8 with me. The author explains some more of the meaning of his of his quoting from Psalm 40. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. In that, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. So plainly speaking here, Jesus' obedience to the cross and his will to fulfill the old covenant and complete the new covenant did away with the old or the first, and established the new. It's another way that the author of Hebrews is helping us see that the Old Testament was always pointing us to the gospel. Verse ten this is where it gets very gospelly. And by that, by that will, meaning Jesus, all the old covenants setting up for Jesus coming him being obedient to the point of death on a cross, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And by that will, the will of God, to end his first will, his old covenant, the will of God is what Jesus fulfilled for us. He willed for us to be with him, to be made perfect, to have our sins forgiven, to be brought into relationship with him, even though everything in us makes us unworthy and sinful, No one but Jesus could fulfill this will. Do you understand this? We couldn't obey our way into perfection before God. But Jesus does it for us. In fact, it was our sins of disobedience that even made this necessary. In that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So who are we in this? Meaning, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. Believe this. Have been. Meaning, you, this has already happened to you. You have been sanctified. Sanctified meaning set apart. Holy. Believers in this new covenant of what Jesus has done have been set apart and cleansed and purified. And it had everything to do with works, just not yours. The works of Jesus. Jesus' work of following God's will perfectly to become the offering sacrifice that you should have been because of your sin. This is how we get true life with him and experience his holy presence. But it gets better. Look at the next phrase. Through his will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. One time obedience for all your sin, even the sins you haven't committed yet. Man, think about the glory of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, even the sins you haven't committed yet are forgiven. Once for all. We are so easily tricked into thinking that we're only saved up to a point. We're only saved up as long as we keep it up once for all. In one life, Jesus completes everything for you. I want to show you a cross reference here. I want to get real about some real sins, okay? I think it's so easy to kind of excuse ourselves or ignore this, but look at 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 11. Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth and says, or do you not know that the unrighteous, listen, that's you if you've ever sinned, apart from the work of Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Stop there. Let us sit, think about all of us. This list covers all of us. Even if you're like, haven't committed any of the sexual sins, you're an idolater. We all worship things other than God. He puts it in this list, but then look at verse 11. Yes, these things you have committed, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Man, if you would believe it, it would change everything. Some of you continue to divine yourself by verse 9 through 10. You think, I'm still that. I'm still that sexually immoral person. I'm still greedy. I'm still this. But the gospel speaks over you, and such were some of you. You're washed, sanctified, justified. Verse 11 in Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So as long as people were sinful, the priests needed to stay on their feet. Why? Because the people kept sinning and more sacrifices had to be made. And these sacrifices can never take away sins because only God can do that. And I'm sure, I mean, sure as I can be, None of us put on priestly robes and perform sacrifices today after we sin. But I guarantee you can relate to this. You constantly stay on your feet trying to ease your conscience. We have this never-ending desire to justify ourselves. You think, oh man, I messed up. Now i got to go back to church. i got to go talk to this person. Oh man, I messed up again. Let me go think these thoughts or start a new Bible plan or fill in the blank. Whatever religious kind of routine you have, it's so easy to think that if we can just kind of routine our way out of our sin then our conscience will be cleared, never-ending drive to make ourselves right. And all that does, we've already said, reminds us there's something wrong with us. Even followers of Christ, we can think that we behave our way into good graces with God when he's already done the work. But look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did this high priest do? He sat down at the right hand of God. These other high priests, they kept standing up because the sin was still there. And man, it breaks my heart knowing that some of you are still standing up. Some of you know Jesus and you're thinking that you've got to be up and there's still work for you to do and you've got to continue to try to make yourself right with God. When I'm trying to show you in Hebrews 10, our high priest made a sacrifice for sins and then he sat down waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The other priests made their offerings and had to stay standing because there was more work to be done. But Jesus was the better high priest. He's crushed for all of our sin, and he sits down. Why? Because his work was finished. His sacrifice was satisfactory. And now he rules sovereignly over every enemy until every enemy bows to him. Every sin, every false religion, whatever you want to say, anything that threatens the eternal joy of his people, he rules over. All enemies of Jesus fall because he is sitting on his throne. Man, you're honest, when you're in that rut, when you go back to that sin you promised you would never go to, it's easy to ask questions like, why doesn't God just destroy me now? Right? Like grace feels too good to be true. Like, is this actually how it works? There's a God this holy and a people this sinful, and by one sacrifice we are clean. Everything in our flesh is gonna fight against believing that. And if that were true in my life, the high priest would have to keep going. I have to keep repenting and feeling bad for getting caught and have to start over and do overs and whatever else I need to do to make my conscience work again after horrible sins I do or horrible sins I remember in my past and so how do we reconcile that tension Jesus died so that you would be his and even though we continue to sin and mess it up it's a reminder of the sacrifice he has made look at the verse again for by a single offering he has perfected Look at the tenses here. Perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Did you catch that? Jesus' one-time offering has perfected forever, already a current reality for you if you're in the new covenant. Perfected, whole, complete, completely forgiven. Who are the ones who are already like that? Those who are being sanctified. Sanctified. In your process of failing and repenting and sinning and obeying, as God moves you toward himself, he is already seeing you as perfect with the track record of his perfect son. You're free to believe this by grace. You are already counted as perfect, and God is defeating every enemy that threatens your final perfection in heaven with him forever, where there will be no more shadows and only the Savior waiting for us. No act of disobedience can keep you out of what Jesus' obedience purchased for you. And as you walk in that victory that's already been won, you can have victory over the sins in your life. And so now when you sin again or you see the sin in your life, you're not condemned. You can be thankful. Thankful that it's defeated. Thankful that you can see it. Thankful that you hate it. And thankful that you can kill it. All because Jesus has done the work. The gospel applied has happened already. It is happening now as he makes us more like Christ, and it will happen when he brings it to completion. Romans 8 says it this way. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Sanctified, that's what that means, being conformed to the image of Christ. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what it means for you if you're a Christian. If you're justified right now, believing in Christ, repenting of your sin, putting your faith in him, you are glorified in his sight until you see it yourself. Or until Jesus finally and fully defeats every enemy that comes against the joy of his people with him. In his love, you are so predestined that you're already glorified. It's amazing. Nothing to do with your works. All his grace aimed at you. You received it by faith, and it's true for all time. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with him after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So be asking the Lord even now that the Spirit would use these realities to grip your heart. The Lord said he will put the laws in our hearts and minds. If you're in Christ, that means you are able to want to obey. You're able to want obedience to God. And in knowing that, we will still sin, We still will never measure up. But then as you're thinking of that, he adds, our sins will be remembered no more. The sins you commit are, in a gospel way, remembered no more. So the point of the old covenant was to remind the people that you are sinful and need saved. But the point of the new covenant is to remind you that you are forgiven and you have been saved. The daily sacrifices of the old covenant were to constantly remind God's people they needed rescue, they needed new hearts, and that they needed fully forgiven. The work was never done. The once for all sacrifice of the new covenant was meant to constantly remind you that you are rescued, you have a new heart, and you are fully forgiven. The work is done. Band, make your way back up. I'm going to add a few more things before we sing. Right now, we need to be focusing our attention. On our lack of obedience and on Jesus' incredible love for us and his obedience to do everything necessary to bring these realities true for us. This should be sifting us. This should be stirring you. How can this be true? Only by the grace of God. And so if you're a non-Christian in the room, I'm begging you not to ignore this. Jesus is sitting right now at the throne of God and if you don't come to him in faith, you are one of the enemies that he will separate from himself. But this same Jesus died for his enemies. He dealt with your sin if you'll come to him by faith. And for the rest of us who know Jesus, for those of us that are tired of never living out the gospel in joyful kingdom-moving ways, please understand this. The answer isn't to do more or try harder or make yourself better. The answer is to be astonished by Jesus, to love him to come in your weakness and your brokenness under the weight of your guilt and shame and realize that he's already taken it all away. He has done it one time in one offering forever. And he'll defeat every enemy that threatens your future with him forever. And as you walk in that victory, you get to go kill the sins in your life and use your life as a sacrifice for others so they can know this news too. And that's what's true about us in Christ this evening. Let's stand and sing.